Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. I'm J.R. Jameson. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. We're the co-founders of The Facing Project. So, Kelsey, your third book is now out. Where am I giving? Why did you pick that theme? Well, so for the past 15 years, I've been traveling around to sometimes some of the poorest places on the planet, including slums and dumps, and, and meeting people whose realities are much different than my own. And uh, it's exposed me to the realities, uh, injustices, inequalities that exist in the world. And then what do you do with that? Does that change you in some way? Do you, I think awareness without action leads to apathy. So if you're going to act, how are you going to act? Where my giving isn't about, despite the title, it's about me giving everywhere. It's traveling around the world to meet people who are amazing givers. What was something you learned from the stories, the people who are the stories you met along the way? Yep. So I guess I was kind of looking for an answer to the good person equation. So I traveled around to meet these folks who were amazing givers. And you know, how much of your time should you give? How much what percentage of your income should you give to what kinds of causes? How much should you volunteer? That kind of thing. And I kind of found that there was really no answer to that equation. So I happened to meet uh, Arun Gandhi, which is Gandhi's great-grandson. And so I shared with him this idea that I was looking for the good person equation. He just kind of laughed and was like, that, you, know, you have to find your own equation. You just have to progress in your giving. So you know, I met people who live in um, a slum, one of the most violent slums in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, a group led by a woman named Rosie, who was a former gang member, who is now a peace activists and and risk her lives and the lives of of those in her group to promote peace. Uh, here's a former gang member who you feel like she doesn't really have a lot in terms of the things that we think we have to have to give, but she has a lot of skills, uh, a lot of spirit, and a lot of leadership qualities that even though she doesn't get paid a single thing, she gives to her um, you know to her community. I met a guy on the opposite end who had everything. He was a, his name was Scott Neeson. Um, he started the Cambodia Children's Fund that works with individuals who live in this dump in Cambodia, one of the worst places I've ever been. And Scott was a, living the life, uh, Hollywood life. He was a Hollywood producer. He had the Hollywood girlfriend. He had the yacht. He had the fast cars, seven-figure income. And then he happened to go to this dump in Cambodia and saw that there was a whole nother reality. And he actually ended up leaving that career behind and now lives uh, among these individuals working with local people. And so when I visited there in 2008, 
I saw this immense need and felt completely helpless and just walked away. Well, Scott saw that need and he stayed. And it was the most hopeless place I've ever been. But people who I met on the dump in 2008, some of those kids who were collecting trash on that dump are now in college because of the Cambodia Children's Fund. So um, so I kind of looked at people from all aspects of giving, people who have a lot to give in terms of resources and people who have a lot to give in terms of talent. And what came from that is a series of giving roles you developed as you were writing the book. And those may have been inspired by some of the people who you met along the way. What are some of those giving roles? I mean, I, I counted at one point because we worked so closely together. You had like uh, close to 100 giving roles in the book. What are maybe just a couple that really stood out for you as kind of the overarching theme of where am I giving? First off, they're more suggestions, right? You know, True. But I call them giving rules because it's more of like giving rules. Like I think it really can. It's one of the most important things that we can do in the world is focus on other people as opposed to ourselves. And I think at its heart, one of the most important things giving does is it connects us to our community. It connects us to causes. Another important giving rule was that um, a gift is only a gift if it never stops. Um, we all have different types of gifts that have um, been given to us by someone or influenced by someone. And it's, uh, it's only a gift if we pass that gift on. And I think it also gets to the point of gratitude first, then giving. I think we have to be grateful for the gifts that we have been given that maybe weren't always earned before we can be grateful for them, and then we uh, can pass those on. So our theme today is giving, because your book is Where Am I Giving? But the Facing Project has given us both so much. And the two stories shared today are stories we have personal connections to that have taught us so much about how we live and give in our world today. All right, let's listen. A Brothership Memoir. Kelsey Timmerman's story, as told to Michael Brockley from Mentoring and Muncie, a facing project, performed by Akil Thompson. A boy I know from the slums of Nairobi delivered his neighbors from genocide by speaking the language of his country's outlaws while he stood in the crosshairs of their guns. I believe in community. Umbuntu. Humanity shared. I am because we are. I volunteered to become a big brother after writing Where Am I Wearing? After serving at Teamwork for Quality Living. I met my little brother's mother at the big brother's big sister's office. We chatted through the awkwardness of why a stranger would want to be matched with her son. But big brother's big sisters smoothed the rough edges and found common ground for a mother who wanted a life for her 10-year-old boy beyond staying home with video games and Percy Jackson novels. He liked to read, and I was a writer, a millennial, eager to play at being 12 years old again. He read, Where Am I Wearing? in two days. We played pass. I pretended I was Joe Montana and that he was Jerry Rice. We bonded over ping pong volleys and didn't keep score. In my new little brother's eyes, I could wear sunglasses at night because the sun never sets on cool. I'll call him Matt. On our first outing, we ate grinders at Mancino's. 
We watch fantasy and superhero movies like Avatar and Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Matt taught me how to be a father to my newborns. I looked forward to watching my children grow up from the wisdom he shared with me. We talked about whatever boys discuss with men, brag and bravado, football. We speculated about driving fast cars and gravel roads, about ice cream headaches and dodgeball tactics. He dreamed of being a surgeon and an entrepreneur. His funny accents made my daughter laugh. He was a 10-year-old boy and practically a freshman the very next day. His calendar was jam-packed with the high hopes and endeavors of a teenager, while my days were packed with author visits across the United States. That summer, my father and I brought Matt to a model airplane fair. But Matt was lethargic and grumpy all the while model airplanes buzzed noisily through the southeast Muncie sky. A morning after consuming too many beers, I lectured him about choices. He had friends with muscle cars. I had lost my sunglasses. We never saw Thor or Daredevil, and we even skipped the final Harry Potter. Matt, who read the autobiography of Malcolm X, was too cool for school. My lectures failed him. He texts me on the night road, me heading southbound to Muncie on I-69 from Fort Wayne, my daughter crying in the back seat, my son asleep beside her. Matt was miles away, stranded somewhere after curfew. My little brother, one of the first to suspect my son had autism, was so many miles away from me. A few months later, a kid he walked home with opened a door that was not his to open. The police caught them with property they didn't own. If I'd been arrested, my parents would have lawyered up to let me spend the night in my own bed. I might have served a few months probation, been grounded, and lost my cell phone. I would have graduated from high school, studied anthropology at Miami University, and graduated cum laude. I had the chance to become a Turon, and even did. I visited Matt at the YOC, a school for kids without options, a school for kids under lock and key. He wouldn't talk. Shame, I guess. I bought him mocha frappes from McDonald's. We played Scrabble on a $75 board, and he started to talk to me again. I promised to be there for him. I told him I believed in him. But he mouthed off to his counselors and lacked respect in a place where wise guys earned demerits. He prolonged his sentence beyond a year. He started drinking again after his release. We drifted apart eventually, and due to this drift, Big Brother's Big Sisters suspended our match. Presently, he texts me while I'm delivering my underwear spiel on a stage in Pella, Iowa, or putting my children to bed. He's worried about the Donald Trump insanity and the dark national road ahead. He dropped out of school, but listed me as a reference when he signed the lease for his first apartment. He's a good guy who's made some bad decisions. I told his potential landlord on the phone, he needs someone to believe in him and give him a chance. None of us chooses our brothers. I volunteered to enter his world of demigods and lightning-scarred wizards. We forged our brothership over a Scrabble board and phone conversations between Burkina Faso and Middletown, USA. I didn't choose Matt, and he didn't choose me. But we ring true when we're together. We are truer now 
than when he was 10 and I was 12, as we turned button hooks on passing routes during our Big Brother outings. I want to leave an Ubuntu America for my brother, Matt. So Kelsey, that was the first time you were a storyteller on a facing project. What was that experience like to be on the other side of the table? Yeah, it was definitely different. I'm usually the one asking the questions. I'm usually the one listening. But it was also really good in that my relationship with um, Matt just kind of faded away. Like our, our mentorship relationship just kind of faded away. And there was no real closure on that. So I wasn't expecting this, but when I sat down to talk with Mike, who's a writer in the story, it was really kind of therapeutic to kind of sort through all my thoughts and feelings around that. Because in, in many ways, I feel my, my brother actually is a, my actual brother is a, was a big brother as well. And like his little is like in med school, you know, and I, in many ways, I kind of felt like a failure. So it was really good for me to just share and not have to write about it. Because when I'm writing about something, I'm usually thinking of what is the narrative here? But to have someone else like asking me questions that maybe I want to ask myself, I think it was kind of liberating to explore um, explore my thoughts and feelings a little bit more than I would have if I was just like looking for the narrative to share. Yeah. And did you feel vulnerability in any of those moments or was it more about catharsis? Yeah, I think I definitely had to reflect to, to kind of those feelings of of being a failure as a volunteer. And I'm, I'm not saying I was a failure in, in hindsight, but like there was definitely those feelings and probably still is of of like it it didn't end how I hoped it would end. Right. I actually still keep in touch with him and just talked to him recently. Um, and it's still it's like he's my brother. Right. Like you don't choose your brother. And like like Mike wrote in the story and but we're connected and we always will be. And the gift that he has given to you from the story is one that you continue to carry today. Well, you know, I hope so. I, you know, I learned a lot and uh, I'm glad that he's in my life and wouldn't have been if I wasn't looking for a way to kind of give back and be more involved in the community. So that was the first time I was a storyteller on a project. Now let's listen to the first time you were a writer on a project. Yeah, let's go to that. Inextinguishable, holy. Pat's story is told to J.R. Jameson from Facing Poverty in Delaware County, Indiana, performed by Debbie Gertman. One by one, as my kids left the house to plant their own seeds in life, I decided I wanted to become a teacher. I'd been in college once before, years ago, but I gave that up to raise my family. So, in my 40s, I earned my degree. I went on to work with emotionally disturbed kids. I did a lot of home visits in those days. Oh, yes. This opened my eyes to the poverty in Muncie. It wasn't always financial poverty. That's the one big misconception that we all make about poverty. It was poverty and guidance, and I suppose sometimes that poverty can be more severe. It impacts your essential person. But I look at the whole picture. What was the greatest need? That they knew someone cared for them, maybe? One student, I wasn't sure he'd make it, 
Sure, I'd seen him one day in the paper as a victim or a perpetrator. But one Christmas several years later, encased in a hood and layers of clothing, through the clanging of each ding and a blissful Merry Christmas, thank you, Merry Christmas, my eyes focused towards just a glimpse of something I thought I'd remembered from the past. And there he was, ringing a bell for the Salvation Army. He looked at me through those layers and said my name. After all those years, he was there giving back to his community. We chatted, but for a moment, he explained to me how the Salvation Army had helped him in a time of need, so he chose to give back. He's now married and has a kid. Maybe the good Lord had a hand. Your heart may not be into something unless you know the impact you can make through your actions. In 2009, two days before Christmas, I had a house fire and lost everything I ever owned. I was put in the position to accept things. I'd always given. I had no idea what I was going to do. It was 14 below zero with severe winds. But people I didn't even know just came out of the woodwork with the only thought to help me. People are so good. I was getting the gifts of others. I never question those things that come along. They're meant to be. We're meant to share our gifts. My hobby is people. I enjoy spending time with people from all walks of life. Some are widows, some are not. We all have different gifts to share. For me to share with them, for them to share with me. JR, that was your first time ever really interacting with the Facing Project whatsoever. What were some of your takeaways from that experience? Yeah, you know, I was really nervous when I sat down with Pat just because of our age difference. I thought, how could I ever do the story justice? And then once Pat and I started to talk, I became uncomfortable because she's such a religious woman and it was clear to me that she's a huge supporter of the Salvation Army and it's a place where she's found comfort and a place where she wants to give her time and that was so counter to my own story as someone who religion has been a painful part of my existence but i had to realize that the story was not about me this was pat's story and from just listening to pat and getting over that hurdle that I was putting in place, we were able to find similarities. We realized that we lived in almost the same neighborhood. We realized that we both cared about community in the same way. And so more than anything, it taught me the importance of listening and not shutting down someone's story or someone's experience from the beginning because of a road bump that I began to turn it back toward me to think that it's about me and that because of this one thing and in this instance, right, it was about religion or about a specific organization that I wasn't comfortable with. Had I stopped there, which probably would have been the old me, I wouldn't have gotten to hear Pat's full story to realize how much our stories are connected and how much good existed 
in her narrative. Yeah, like you maybe would just write her off because of those certain beliefs and not actually sit down and like listen to her. Yeah, and I, you know, I feel like that helps shape so much of how we approach Facing Project today, just because even when I went with Pat to the event and sat side by side, and we've talked about this before, but seeing the magic that occurred on stage and looking around the audience and how people connected with these various stories around Facing Poverty, I wanted others to have that same experience because I knew within myself, I, I stepped over that hurdle to actually sit down and learn the art of listening and how much that impacted me. And I knew that that experience could mean so much for others if they just did the same thing. I often think like the act of listening to someone is like, is a gift to them. And listening often is seen as a unselfish act compared to speaking. But like, I think about it differently though, because I feel mm. like that listening can be like a really selfish thing because like, I know everything I know already. Right. Like it's, uh, listening is an opportunity to learn from someone else and kind of see through their point of view. That's one of the things I really love about the Facing Project is the excuse to sit down and listen. And, and, and yeah, we don't always agree, uh, but it's like the storyteller's truth, right? It's not our truth to, sh to necessarily shape. It's just to try to, you know, empathize with their point of view. Yeah. I mean, listening can be an act of selfishness in some way because of the learning aspect of it. But then when we see these stories being performed on stage or we read them in print and then we see how they've impacted others who took the time to either listen to the story on stage or took the time to read them and they got over those own hurdles. Sure, it's an act of selfishness in a way because of education. But that education is going to change hearts and minds. And we've seen that time and again where that's happening. And I think that's kind of the real magic around the art of listening, that it is a moment of selfishness, but it's also a moment of change. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, gift is only gift if it never stops, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Pat's story is, is proof of that. Of, of her life, of, of giving, and then that comes back to return to her and there are people there to support her. And also in the act of you listening to her story and you sharing her story and other people hearing that. Mm -hmm. And we really hope The Facing Project inspires others to give. And one of the easiest ways to give is to listen. To start a Facing Project in your community, visit us online at facingproject.com. To listen to more episodes, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and directed by Laura Williamson and Michael Dane, with editorial assistance provided by Amory Orchard. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jamison. We'll be back next month with more stories from The Facing Project.